Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Who can help you accomplish this? Not how do you accomplish it? Because if you get stuck on this mentality that you have to do everything yourself, you will continuously hit a wall. So I suggest you surround yourself with successful people who are experts in their areas Don't try to be an expert day one. Surround yourself with the right people and jump in and get dirty. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today with me, I have Chris Pomerleau. Chris is joining us from Omaha, Nebraska. He's the co-founder and director of investment strategy at Raven, which is a lead sponsor for value-add multifamily properties through syndication and through joint venture partnerships. The current portfolio consists of $240 million in assets under management, which is just over 2,700 units. Chris, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Slocum. I started my career in the working field, if you will, as an attorney. So I like to call myself a recovering attorney. I practiced for 10 years. I served some time in the military. And throughout that process, I had a chance to build what I thought was a long-term ticket to financial freedom with the attorney and practicing law and, and serving the country. But I quickly realized that passive income was not going to happen. You only make money if you're billing when you're an attorney. So I finally had an opportunity in 2013. I took the leap to jump into actually putting into action the things I had learned from Rich Dad, Poor Dad five years before that when I read it on Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So for 10 years, I practiced law. I no longer practice law. I now help run a couple of investment companies that we started, one of them being Raven, the other one being Levin Wealth. And all we do there is just help people invest in real estate and build the same passive income that I've been doing for the last 10 years. You started in 2013. That's the year that I first read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and ended up becoming a house hacker. Chris, what did you start with in 2013? 2013, so I had just gotten out of the military. It took me about six months to find a job because not a lot of law firms cared about my military background. I had my law degree, but so I finally got a job at full-time family law attorney. And so it was that year where I succeeded through law but I realized passive income was needed. 
So I took a jump into what I thought would be the easiest or lowest hanging fruit, and that was a single family home that my dad and I purchased. So we bought a single family home nearby, and we did everything ourselves. We tried the Burr method, which was successful, but it took us a year. So we bought a single family home for about $100,000. We put $40,000 into it, and a year later it appraised at $200,000. So we refinanced it, rolled it into the next one. And four years later, I had four single-family homes. I had lost every single weekend of my life working and laying flooring and putting in toilets. I did get to spend a lot of quality time with my father, who's since passed. So it was certainly worth our time as far as the family is concerned. But I learned a lot what to do and what to expect. I learned the lingo, the financials, and whatnot. And it was in 2017 where I said, hold on a second. I own four single-family homes. I have zero dollars into it because of the refinance. Let's try this on a duplex. Let's try this on a 20-unit. Let's try this on an 80-unit. So in 2017 is where that skyrocketed. And and as you would imagine, the larger and larger we got, the more investors we needed to bring in. And that's really where we started jumping into multifamily was 2017. You started with Burr Deals. If our listeners aren't familiar, they can Google the acronym. There are four R's. That investment strategy requires a pretty heavy forced appreciation because you're looking to cash out refi all of your capital, ideally in year two, typically, or in months seven through 12 with a single family. As you scaled, did you continue with properties that had that level of a forcible appreciation or did you transition into more of the value add business model that has a five to seven year hold period with an IRR that may not have that same forcible appreciation, but also doesn't have the same risk involved? All of our assets have the availability for the force appreciation play. I oversimplify the explanation when I talk to people about it, but I say, look, you're not going to want to buy an Apple stock when it's at its peak, right? So that's how I view the real estate market. I don't think it makes sense, in my opinion, with the amount of opportunities we have to buy assets at their peak value. So all of our assets have a value-add play. Now, to your question about the timeline and how that played out from single-family to multifamily, that timeline certainly became longer. You can get a single-family done in weeks now, especially if you have the teams. You get a team in there to flip it real quick. You go to a bank that doesn't have a seasoning requirement and you refi the deal, and that should be very quick. When it comes to a 150-unit apartment complex, that is taking longer. We've gone through 56 full-cycle deals now, and we've pulled out 100% of our money on all 56. And that ranges from single families all the way over to apartments over 100 units. So as you would imagine, the larger and larger the complex, the longer it takes to reposition it and stabilize it. And so it does become two, three, four, five years. Chris, when you say pulled out all your capital, are you talking about a cash out refinance or a sale? Cash out refinance. When I first got into real estate, Rich Dad certainly resonated with me, but I was lucky enough to be in a position where I was making attorney money. Now, trust me, that ranges all over the place. There are plenty of attorneys who, believe it or not, have trouble paying the utilities, but there are also many that make a lot of money. But I was making enough money where I didn't need these shiny checks of flips. So I wanted to build wealth. I wanted to build long-term passive income. So we don't sell our properties. Now, don't get me wrong. We've sold properties because we've had offers that are too good to pass on. 
but we get into all of our deals and we expect our 700 now investors to do the same, that our goal here is to hold them long term, pull out all of our money so that we're into it for zero dollars and continue to get that passive income. So when I say pull the cash out, I mean a full refinance. Chris, this is the kind of investing and investing partnership with other investors that I'm looking to scale into myself. And I know a few other people who I've interviewed through this podcast who do it that way. How are you structuring your relationship with your investors, the people bringing capital to your deals? It's going to depend upon the fund, if you will, or the business plan approach. We started off the podcast with the name of the two companies that I'm most participating in, co-founding. One's Levin Wealth, and that is our bread and butter, the 2,700 units that we own. What we provide to those investors are typically a 7% preferred return, and then some type of division after that. 70-30, it's been spoken about on this podcast many times. There's a way you can cut it up. I think the reason we've been able to keep our investors, and we have a lot of repeat investors, is that we don't dilute the partners after the refinance. Sometimes we might move that percentage from 70-30 down to 60-40, but that's still 60% going to the limited partner. And they will continue to receive a preferred return on any money they still have in the deal. So with that being said, if a $100,000 investor, if we refinance the deal and they get $100,000 back, it just goes right to 70-30 or maybe 60-40 depending upon what the documents say. But let's say that $100,000 investor only received $90,000 back. They're still receiving a 7% preferred return on that $10,000 that they still have in the deal. So we structure it so that an investor always gets a preferred return on any capital they have on the deal. Now, my other fund, which we just launched recently, which I'm actually really excited to talk about, is Raven. And the reason that's so exciting to me is that it allows for investors to get into the deal. So our Leavenwealth deals have a minimum investment of fifty dollars or $75,000, and almost always you need to be accredited. With the Raven deal, it's a Regulation A deal, and we've set that minimum threshold at $250, and you do not need to be accredited. So the reason that's so exciting to us is that we're allowing investors to get in on our deals for as low as $250, and they don't need to be accredited. And the benefits there is that it really opens it up to a lot of people. Now, Raven goes out and buys multifamily, and it pays our investors the equivalent of a 10% IRR over time. So that's extremely intriguing to people who have limited amount of capital to invest, but they still want to get in on real estate and figure out a way to make their money work for them. Chris, let's talk to the other active investors among the best ever listeners here. You're going Regulation A and making this opportunity available for as little as $250. Why is it that you're doing it that way? We've been successful at raising a lot of money and partnering with a lot of people on our deals through Leavenwealth. The reason we chose the Regulation A route is so that we could advertise to the masses and allow as many people as possible to invest in our deals. Because I know a lot of people that want to get in on real estate, but maybe they aren't accredited, or maybe they don't have that fifty or $75,000. So going the Regulation A route allowed us to open it up to a number of individuals that now can participate in real estate. Speaking to the listener base who are active investors, either considering raising capital for the first time or seasoned 
in raising capital, but specific to accredited investors through the various means made available by the SEC. If I wanted to do something like this, how is it that I would set it up as a Regulation A, and isn't it too much complication to justify investing capital in such small amounts? That's a great question. There are pros and cons. Luckily, from the investor side, it's a great pro. They can get in for as little as 250 Now, our investors are investing more than that, but luckily, you can get in for as little as $250. As far as the, from the sponsorship side, the pro would be what we've spoken about. Low barrier of entry. You don't need to be accredited. There's a con for us in that we spend a very large amount of money on the regulatory items, a lot of legal work, a lot of advertising, social media advertising, search engine optimization, SEO, marketing, all of these items that are important to us that allow us to go out there and raise money at the smaller increments means we need a lot more investors. It means we have to keep track of things that typically we didn't have to, such as what is the SEO telling us? Who's clicking on what? Which ads are being clicked on? So it's a little more marketing focused. That's a learning curve for us. But luckily, we partner with marketers who do this full time who know what they're doing. So the benefit here really is that as a sponsor, if you like to do this, make sure that you're choosing the right marketing company that knows what they're doing that have run a Regulation A before so they can help you drive as much traffic as possible. From the investor side, it's we're taking on the blunt of all the hard work so you can get in for lower barriers of entry. So it benefits the investor for sure. And it has the sincere opportunity to benefit the sponsor if it's done correctly. I'm getting a sense of a piece of criticism that I think some of our listeners will have here, most of them being fairly sophisticated investors in their own right. This Regulation A that allows for such small investments in this vehicle that typically requires fifty dollars to $100,000 for a starting investment, it's also coming with a 10% internal rate of return, which is significantly lower than what most accredited investors are going to demand from a deal. A 10% IRR is just significantly lower than what most of them would even consider. I'm happy to speak on that. Yeah, I was trying to think of a more rosy way to say this, but without beating around the bush, Chris, are you doing it this way just because the returns remain greater for the general partnership? No. If the assets perform better than 10%, then the returns are better for not just the general partnership, but there's also seed capital. So you could view this as, and I'm going to go a very high level here, you could view an investment like this as having three Uh, levels or three classes, if you will. Now, this is not legal advice, but the first class would be the few founders, the people who are actually putting together, the managers, the asset managers, the sponsors. That would be the first class. But there's a significant amount of money needed to do a Regulation A, and all of it is spent on advertising and legal work, and none of it is going towards originally towards the actual purchase of the asset. That's coming from the class C members, if you will, the retail investor who's investing for as little as $250. The class B people in the middle are our seed investors, you could call LPs, if you will, who helped with that seed round. So to answer your question, why would an accredited investor want to jump into something that's 10%? I can answer that in two ways. First off, we have a lot of accredited investors who are writing us 100000 well, to be honest, $3 million checks to get into some of our deals, and their risk appetite is a lot different. There's no 10% pref to them, which is what this 10% is. 
And also, if you're a credit investor is writing $150,000, $300,000 checks, a lot of times you have a risk appetite and or you understand the process and you're willing to take that risk with that money. A lot of our retail investors, they like to get in because this is an opportunity for them to invest into something that's backed by real estate. So if you talk to that retail investor who makes $70,000 a year and they're going to write a $2,000 check to get 10%, first off, go out there and find me a CD right now that's going to make them 10%. You can't. And then also go out there and find me a deal that that $70,000 annual employee salary member can actually invest into one of our accredited deals when the minimum is 75. They can't. So I understand the question completely. Regulation A is often not for the people who are willing to take the larger check-writing risks. The retail investor for this deal that we're doing is benefited because they have an opportunity to get in at lower thresholds and still make more than they would make in the stock market, more than they would make as a CD, and also a chance to partake in something backed by real estate. One of the things I actually didn't mention about Raven is that on top of the 10%, it's also going to decarbonize the planet. So what we have through our legal documents, we actually are obligated to, we install solar energy on these assets. So we're actually helping decarbonize the planet by installing solar energy on the assets, helping as to the list of items that makes this a better investment. Not only are they making 10% when they couldn't make it elsewhere, but they're also helping decarbonize the planet. Did you say that's a 10% preferred return? Yes, it's a 10% annualized preferred return. And what that means is they may only get paid 6% for the first three years. But when we close the fund, we're obligated to get them back 10% total as an IRR. So it ends up being a 10% IRR when the fund is closed at 10% IRR preferred return. Gotcha. So while my question could have beaten you up about keeping that percentage low, you're also protecting the downside to some degree. Well, sure, because if we go out and we buy all these assets with the money and then we sell them all and it only makes 10%, we've made $0 and the retail investor made 10%, so we worked for free that entire time. So we're willing to take that risk, allowing people to get into some real estate investments, giving them the 10%, and then we need to make sure it performs better than 10% so we can make some money. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you tired of spending hours managing your rental properties? Inago is here to simplify your life as a landlord or property owner with their free property management software. With Inago, you can say goodbye to complex and costly solutions. Inago is designed with simplicity in mind, focusing on the features that matter to you. From tenant screening and lease signing to rent collection and work order management, Inago has got you covered. They offer a seamless interface and dedicated support representatives to assist you in every step of the way. Join thousands of satisfied landlords and start streamlining your property management tasks today with Inago. Plus, you'll get a $25 Amazon gift card just for using Inago. Visit Inago.com forward slash best ever to get started and reclaim your time and sanity that's I-N-N-A-G-O dot com forward slash best ever. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. 
BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Only one or two more questions here before we transition the conversation. Chris, why did you set the threshold at $250? To allow investors to get into the deal. I would imagine a lot of the listeners happen to be sponsors themselves. I don't know the general makeup of the best ever podcast listeners, but it's one of the top podcasts and it's been around for a very long time. And I know I've listened to it for a long time. So we may be investing tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own money into these deals. But there are many people that, A, want to invest into something backed by real estate and B, wouldn't mind helping the planet when it comes to decarbonization, but they don't have $75,000 to do so. So we set it at 250 to allow as many members as possible in. Is that a headache for us? Perhaps, because if every single investor was $250, there'd have to be a lot. But it's worth us taking on that headache because it makes more sense to allow as many people as possible. Another way to look at it would be, and I hate to name drop on here because I'm sure this individual would like to come on here and explain, but I suggest to perhaps investigate yourself on what Grant Cardone does. Grant Cardone does Regulation A funds for very low thresholds with very low IRRs. And he does that. I don't know. I don't want to jump into his head of why he does that. But I can say one benefit for him. It would be allowing many, many, many people to invest that typically don't get a chance to invest because the thresholds are so high. Chris, I'd like to play devil's advocate here and make a counter argument that I don't necessarily believe in myself, but I think some of our listeners may be thinking something along the same lines as me. A threshold as low as $250. If a person or a household has only been able to save $250 or under $1,000 to be able to invest, there are probably other things that they should be focusing on with that money. Building out a nest egg, having a personal cushion, possibly becoming a homeowner for themselves to take advantage of all of the financial advantages to being a homeowner if they're currently renting. Recognizing that, yes, they may be looking to diversify a very small amount of capital and have four or five figures to invest, but are only putting three figures in your deal. Shouldn't the threshold be higher so that you know that the people who are investing in your deals have the financial capacity to have saved that much money and not need it back out of the deal in a time of crisis? Well, first off, I really appreciate you playing devil's advocate. And that's what I did for not only the 10 years as an attorney that, that I had to look at every single issue and figure out both sides, but I think I've been, for better or for worse, always played devil's advocate my entire life. It helps you wrap your mind around a situation and figure out what the right outcome is. So I appreciate that. I don't think we're in a position to estimate what all of our investors' personal financial positions are. Now, again, I'm not going to give legal advice. I can tell you that 
the direction we've been given from council on previous deals, even when we did 506B, which is a regulation C in which you don't have to be an accredited investor, we still set minimums at 50 or 75,000. So we have some people who don't qualify as an accredited investor coming in at 50 or $75,000. And through that 506B relationship, I was able to glean from our conversation that they felt comfortable and they could invest. But obviously, we're not obligated as sponsors to dive into their entire financial portfolio and speak to their CPA attorney and financial advisor to make sure they're okay. And I say all that because of this. It's not that necessarily an investor is only putting in 250 because it's the last dollars they have. I would never tell anybody to invest $250 if you can't eat and your electricity is not on, your children haven't eaten. It's more of a diversification. I wouldn't tell anybody to put all of their money into a CD, and those things are only paying 5 or 6%. I think it's a good diversification for anybody who has a lot of liquid cash in which they want to put some money towards something. I think it's a great way to earn 10% because you can't do that in a CD. I also think it's a good way for people to get into real estate that traditionally could not do so in these higher threshold investments. So in your hypothetical, I respect it. And to that person, I would say, if you only have $250 and you can't make your car payment, do not invest. But if you're looking to make your own educated decision on what money you have and where you feel comfortable investing, $250 or $10,000 is a lot easier to digest than it would be if I said if you want to actually get into real estate, you can only do so if you're an accredited investor and you have $75,000 laying around. So I'm not saying it's wrong or right. It certainly is a great way to open up this opportunity to a lot of people. Another argument in favor of the $250 threshold or making the threshold as low as possible, Chris. I know personally, I tend to only learn by doing and I need to make my own mistakes and I need to be involved in something and experience it personally before I actually learn anything. At a $250 threshold, while the returns I see on a $250 investment are not going to be life-changing and are not likely to be life-changing for anyone specifically from a financial perspective, the amount of education that you can gain from participating in an investment like this, watching it play out, watching the communications come through from the operating, the lead sponsors, Watching those things happen and thinking about my interaction with this investment as an investor at $250 is a lot of education that can be gleaned from the experience of having been an investor for a very small amount of money with very low downside because at the end of the day, if everything goes bust, I only lost 250 bucks, but I gained a lot of experience from it. No, I appreciate that. Thanks for adding some more ammunition on my side. We're talking about this 250 as if that's the average of the investor. That's just the minimum. The average investment's well over $1,000, and even though that's not very high, one way to look at it, it's funny you're bringing this up, Slocum, because when we built this, at first I had that mindset. I was like, if I'm this person, why am I only putting in 1000 Why would I do this? Why don't we make it $50,000? we will get a lot more people. If you get outside of the best ever podcast realm or if you get outside of the circles that you and I run in where everyone's the sponsor trying to learn how to make the best outcome possible, I have learned through the process that there are a boatload of people that just want to invest. They really like being a mechanic. They really like being a student. 
They really like being a teacher. And they know they'll never make $200,000 a year in order to qualify as a credit investor. Or they have no yearning to build this large syndication company over the next five years. They literally just want to earn 10% on their money and help save the planet. And I'm not trying to downplay the approach like there are different ways to look at it. I'm saying that this route offers many people to get into something that they typically would not get a chance to get into. And that is why I think it's so unique and we're really excited about it. That makes a lot of sense. Chris, you ready for the best ever lightning round? I sure am. What is the best ever book you recently read? 10X, not 2X. Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy. I just finished it myself on all great books. I literally finished it today. It's fantastic. And I just know it to be true. So it's great. What is your best ever way to give back? I talk to a lot of investors a lot and I try to get them to get an understanding or perhaps learn from what I've done before. We are donating our time a lot to provide for those in need, whether it's serving at dinners, kitchens, and really in the investment realm, it's really just trying to have phone conversations and in-person conversations with people who are trying to do what I started doing 10 years ago. And I really enjoy having those conversations with them so that they can learn from what I've done and be as successful as possible. Chris, specific to deals that you have closed, that you raised capital for, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? Too easy. Variable rate mortgage. We have 61 open deals right now. 59 of them are fixed. Two of them have variable rate mortgages. And that's been a fun ride over the last year, year and a half. So the lesson I learned from that was stick to what you feel is the right answer. And what I mean by that is we allowed our institutional money, some family offices, to choose the debt. They chose variable rate because at the time variable rate was about half a point better. And they could sell to their investors that it was better. So we signed up for variable rate mortgage. And we've learned over the process that variables change randomly for the first time this badly in the history of the United States. And that's fine. It's what an experienced operator needs to learn how to deal with, and I feel like we've taken it on full swing. But there is something I learned at day one, and I still know it to be true now. If you can get fixed debt, get it for as long as possible, because you can always predict that a lot better than variable rate. For sure. On that note, what is your best ever advice? Do not get variable rate. I'm just joking. Just jump in and get dirty a little bit. The whole analysis paralysis thing is a real thing. A lot of times you just got to jump in and figure it out. That doesn't mean you need to know everything yourself. I think that it really helps to surround yourself with people who are better than you in certain areas. Another Dan Hardy book, Who Not How. Who can help you accomplish this, not how do you accomplish it. Because if you get stuck on this mentality that you have to do everything yourself, you will continuously hit a wall. So I suggest you surround yourself with successful people who are experts in their areas. Don't try to be an expert day one. Surround yourself with the right people and jump in and get dirty. That's awesome. Last question, where can people get in touch with you? Any social, you can find us at joinraven.com. My email is chris at joinraven.com. That is spelled R-A-Y-V-E-N. That's joinraven.com. And you can find us the same at any of those socials as well. 
Those links are in the show notes. Chris, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thanks for having me, Slocum. I appreciate it. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.